chapter 8, and it will also come up on the screen. Kids, feel free, head out the back, so potentially have an M-rated version, M-rated uh, part of the Bible this morning, but that's, you know, if you'd like to head out the back, feel free to go, because we are thinking about, you know, there's Colin, Colin Buchanan's out the back, he's a great singer, it's great songs. Probably a little bit nicer than hearing about an adulterous woman this morning, so feel free to head out the back. Or uh, if you're willing to, uh, (laughs) no, just the kids head out the back. Uh, Feel free to go. Uh, If you've got a Bible open there, John chapter 8, please hold it open and Heather's going to come and read that for us. John, chapter 8. Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You can just, um, there's a fantastic book that relates to what we're thinking about this morning in not being condemned by God, not being condemned by Jesus and what he's done for us. And it's uh, this one just focusing on the passage of Romans chapter 8, that uh, first verse that I read out before. It's called Supernatural Living for Natural People. And uh, I'll read a, a section of the book at the end of the talk. It's, it's really fantastic. Um, I think you can get it for about $14 through a uh, book. Um, company, so feel free and uh, come and ask us about it. It's, yeah, it's a really fantastic book, especially when we're thinking about uh, this passage in John chapter eight and um, the, the big idea, the big message of the chapter as well. Let's uh, let's pray before we look at God's word and think more about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that you are a great God who speaks to us and hasn't left us in the dark about who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray that you'd be changing us to live more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I just need to give a little disclaimer first about this passage. You probably see that it's in brackets. And uh, usually it wouldn't start off this way, but I think what we're looking at today warrants a bit of an explanation 
the passage that we're looking at is one of those that a lot of people have talked about and a lot of uh, very, very intelligent people have talked about. And so you might see that in your church Bibles there, there's a little bracket that says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses don't have this part of the Bible of John chapter 7, verse 53 through to 8, 11. And so what's doing there? Are we allowed to read it? Are we supposed to be reading it in church? Or if we do read it, are we going to get struck by lightning or something like that? Um, there are hundreds of copies, hundreds of manuscripts of the Bible. And this is uh, a part of uh, the Bible that's it's kind of like, well, it's in some manuscripts, in some copies, but then it's not in other manuscripts. So um, people are like, well, what's, what's doing there? Is it okay to, for us to read it? And through history, the church have mostly said that, well, this, this passage has all the earmarks of being an historical event, that it actually took place. Um, even though it might not have happened here specifically and chronologically in John's Gospel, uh, it is recorded as something that has taken, a pla- taken place and what it teaches us of Jesus is true and uh, what it teaches us is true to the picture that we get from the rest of the New Testament. One last thing before we just jump in and take a closer look at this is that when you get to the very last verse of John's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 25, uh, it says that Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So maybe this part in the brackets of your your church Bibles there, is this one of those parts of John? Um, It's one of those bits that John, you know, simply wanted to leave on the cutting room floor, uh, so to speak, that he decided, is this going to leave it there? We don't really know. Um, But what we do know is that we can learn from it. It does teach us a lot about Jesus and it teaches us a lot about ourselves. So there's just a a little bit of info on the brackets there that you might get and a little disclaimer of uh, earlier manuscripts not having this part of the Bible. I think we can trust it as God's inspired word. So I hope you've got it open there. John chapter 8. I wonder if you've uh, ever been caught in the act of doing something that you really shouldn't have been. Have you you ever been caught in the act of doing something that you shouldn't, shouldn't have? Um, for some of you, it might, it might have been a while. For some of you, it might, have been, uh, might not have been that long ago uh, where you were caught doing something that you shouldn't have been doing. I can remember the day that I was caught in the act, the day that uh, I was caught out doing something that I really shouldn't have been doing. I was 11. I was with my brother straight away. That sounds dodgy, and it was. Uh, we were walking along our street from where we lived, not far from our house, and I had this wonderful idea that we should uh, pick up some rocks and throw them at cars as they go past. This is like you know, little rocks, like gravelly type of stuff. Not you know, big, big rocks, so don't hold it against me, please. But it was my turn, and there was this really nice car that drove past. And I reckon it was the nicest car in the whole street. And so I picked up just you know, a handful of, you know, it was fine gravel, just fine. And I launched it, and then <laughs> I launched it at the car as it drove past, and psh- sprayed all across the back windscreen. I don't recommend that kind of stupid behaviour, especially if you're young and uh, in high school or even in primary school. It's it's really silly behaviour. And the worst part of this was the lady actually stopped her car and she got out and she walked towards myself and my brother. And I I reckon that she was probably the closest thing to King Kong that I've ever seen. Uh, she was tall and she was scary and she was angry and in a cranky voice she came up to my brother and myself and she said, who threw that? So, as the oldest brother, he just stood there and 
thinking about what I'd done, just kicking in the dirt, knowing that I was going to have to face up to it, and I looked up, and pointed and said it was him. <laughs> there was no way that I was going to own up, I was going to fess up, that I was going to cop the blame for that. And so, as a result, my brother was grounded for two weeks, and uh, I got off scot-free. Now, I'm sure we've all got stories like that one. What's it been for you? Where have you been caught in the act of doing something that you knew was wrong? Uh, Perhaps it's sneaking into your brother or sister's bedroom and quietly borrowing their iPod, or maybe it's a practical joke at work, maybe scooping honey on the work colleague's phone or something like that. What's it been for you where you've been caught in the act of something only to hear someone behind you say, "Um, what are you doing? I'm sure we've been there at some point. Well, as we take a look at this part of God's Word this morning, we're going to see how we need to respond when we've been caught in the act of something pretty serious. Something much more serious than throwing gravel at cars or um, borrowing an iPod or playing a practical joke. As we hear from God's uh, Word this morning, uh, the big question we're going to ask is, when it comes to being caught in the act of our sin, when we're caught in the ways that we reject God, how do we respond? Sounds like a pretty heavy thing to do on a Sunday morning, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know if you thought that when you were you know, coming to church this morning and you're driving along, if you thought, you know what? I'd really like to come face to face with my sin this morning. I think over the next little while, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. But I don't think uh, I know anyone that likes to admit that they're in the wrong. And I certainly don't. But today, as we look closely at the way that, we'll respond, that we respond to sin, we'll see so much more greater and so much more deeply the the extent that God has gone to for us in dealing with our sin. We'll see so much more richly God's love to us in Jesus. So we're taking a look at that part of John 8. And it's a passage really that's all about being caught in the acts. There's a real intensity that comes when... Uh, in that event of Jesus' life. I don't know if you kind of felt that intensity as as Heather read that for us. First up, there's a woman caught in the act of adultery. So let's feel the intensity of this scene for a minute. It's dawn, the sun's is starting to come up and Jesus is going to the temple complex and we get this sense of, oh, what's going to happen here? What's Jesus going to do now? Because as he's gone throughout John's Gospel, uh, he's been doing all this great stuff and it's all been in the temple. And so he's been to the temple to clear the tables in the marketplace. He's been there to teach them that he's the bread of life. And so what happens? What does he do this time? Well, he sits down and he begins to teach. And a crowd of of people start gathering around him. He's like this crowd magnet. Like people just straight towards him. And he sits down and he begins to teach them. And it's like these people are like, quick, come and hear Jesus. What's he going to teach us now? Let's, Let's listen to what he's got to say. And then out of nowhere, this small group of people come into the crowd and they're yelling, they're angry and they're like, hey, hey, Jesus. And the crowd's kind of muttering at this point, what's going on? And here's a woman in the centre of, of the group and one of them says, verse 4, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the law of Moses that commands that we're to stone such women. So what do you say? After all the hustle and bustle, and after all the movement of the, of the crowd, shh, there's silence. 
and the people hang on what Jesus will say. This is heavy going, isn't it? The only thing that really you could compare it to if that same scene was moved into here in the church building. Can you imagine a group of people bringing a woman that's been caught in adultery, just putting it down on the floor and they're pointing the finger and said, this woman here, look at what she's done. How would you feel about that? It's happening right in front of you. It's intense, isn't it? It's big. And so here is this woman dragged out, the centre of attention. Uh, she's guilty of sleeping with someone else's husband and she's getting ready to breathe the last breath as she awaits her punishment. And you know, it's not as if that she's been wrongfully accused either. Uh, according to the law of Moses, if you were caught in adultery, then you, it says that you actually deserve the death penalty. Um, it says it in Deuteronomy chapter 22. But there's something missing in this event when it comes to the law of Moses and uh, what the Pharisees do, who, the, the people that bring the woman to Jesus, what they do isn't okay and we'll hear about their hypocrisy in a minute. But when it comes to the adulterous woman in this, in this story, let's, you know, let's be real here. Her life's a mess, isn't it? She's a wreck. She's brought out in front of Jesus. In this, in this situation, we say, yep, she's guilty. There's no disputing that. She was caught in the act. And further on in the event, we'll see that Jesus doesn't condone this woman's sin. He doesn't just kind of sweep it under the carpet and say, oh, yeah, that's fine. Go about doing whatever you're doing. That's fine. But what we'll come to know is this woman's sin, that our sin, that your sin, that my sin, it's not outside the scope of God's forgiveness. So I think it's worth stopping here for a little longer and just taking in how this woman caught in adultery really must have felt. Because in some, perhaps in some ways we can identify with what she feels here. This is a painting by a guy named Guercino back in the 1620s. And I think... He's painted this portrait all about this part of, of John's Gospel. And I think it really shows the extent of how humiliated the woman must have felt. Now, what's striking from the painting there is that she's standing amongst the Pharisees, you know, the religious bigwigs of the day. She's before a crowd of people, but yet she's alone. And she's isolated. And she's ashamed. And she's despised. And so, when it comes to our rejection of God, uh, those feelings of being isolated, of being ashamed, of being stuck in how we reject God in our own lives, they're feelings that we can often experience as well. And maybe you're someone here today and you're feeling that weight. You're just feeling just that weight of sin, that guilt. Maybe you're someone here today that's caught up in greed. You know, you're just wanting more and more and more and more and more stuff and more and more money just so you can feel a bit more satisfied. And so you feel ashamed. Maybe you're, you're someone that uh, knows a, a certain thought pattern or a certain thing that you say uh, isn't building others up, but more pointing the finger at others. And you know that what you're doing isn't glorifying God, but yet you, you still do it anyway and so you feel isolated and you feel ashamed. Maybe it's even quite possible that uh, there's someone here stuck in adultery. Um, and what... Jesus says is that if you've looked lustfully at a woman or a man, then uh, maybe you've been guilty of that kind of adultery. Maybe you're in the middle of emotional adultery. This is uh, something that I think that females struggle with more than men, is where you're drawn to someone who's paying you a bit more attention than your spouse. 
And so you're caught up in this emotional adultery. And so it's such a massive thing to deal with, isn't it? Our sin. And maybe you think, well, this sin is just too massive. It's too big. It's, there's no way in the world that God could ever forgive this. It's way too big for God to forgive. But those feelings of isolation, of guilt and shame, there's actually a history there, isn't there? Uh, those feelings that we experience, they've been around since Adam and Eve. And what do they do when they sinned? Well, they covered over their nakedness. They were ashamed. They tried to hide from God. I don't know how you'd go hiding from the creator of the whole universe, but they tried because they felt guilty. And they felt isolated when they were thrown out of Eden. They cut off from relationship with God. You see, our sin does that to us. We know that we should live God's way, but when we reject his rule, we experience those same feelings that Adam and Eve did, that this woman in John 8 did as well. Maybe for some of us who don't really have those feelings, we might kind of just think, oh yeah, I trust Jesus died for me, and I can live without that feeling of guilt. That's fantastic, that's great. But if you're here this morning and you feel isolated, you feel ashamed because of sin, and if you're here this morning and you're someone that, that doesn't feel guilt because of sin, well, God has something to say to you today in his word. God knows what you feel, and even though he knows how you feel, he loves you. And that's a truth that can be reinforced over and over and over again for us. God has gone to great lengths in dealing with our sin and we'll see that later on. And as we come to recognise what God has done for us, well, out of that we'll see what it looks like then to live for Him. Before we get there, we need to go through the intensity a bit more of this event and it really doesn't uh, slow any time soon. What we see next is the heat really cranks up on these Pharisees, the religious bigwigs of the time. You know, they were the kingpins. They were supposed to help God's people live for God. But yet here, they're caught up in the act of hypocrisy. And we get an insight of you to the real motivation that they had in taking the adulterous woman to Jesus. In verse 6, we read that the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus out. Uh, They tried to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. You see, the Pharisees have got Jesus right where they want him. They've set the trap, they've put the bait out, and now all they've got to do is wait for Jesus to take it and bang, we've caught him. You see, if Jesus answers, yes, throw the stones at the woman, well then his followers are going to turn away from him because they'd think he's some kind of hardline dictator, some kind of Robert Mugabe type leader. And not only that, he'd end up in a lot of trouble with the Romans because the Romans were the only ones that had the the right to carry out the death penalty at the time. But then if Jesus answers, no, don't throw the stone, don't stone the woman, what's going to happen is that he'd be openly breaking the law of Moses and he'd be subject to arrest. He's already on this high alert by the Jewish watchdogs uh, because what he said about things like uh, the Sabbath rest, uh, and this really would be the icing on the cake just to get him to court and to catch him out for the things that he's been saying to get him killed. And so the, the Pharisees, they're playing this trick. They're, pl- they're trying to catch Jesus out. They're sneaking this. And it kind of reminds me of this uh, competition that uh, the drink Solo, the, the soft drink Solo, had. they had a competition a while ago that was called uh, Beat Bear Grills. And basically you had to come up with you know, a game that you've created so you can beat Bear Grills in, in it. 
I really, I don't think there's anything really that you'd be able to do to come up with beat Bear Grylls. Maybe some kind of like mind game would be like, what number am I guessing Bear Grylls? Maybe something like that. And so the Pharisees are taking this on board. They're going, what can we do? What kind of trap can we set to get Jesus? And so, uh, what happens? Do the Pharisees trap Jesus with their game? Do they beat him? Do they get him nailed here? Well, I think it would be like trying to trap Bear Grylls, but just much, much, much more difficult because this is God on earth as a man. And so see how Jesus responds to the Pharisees. And here's the tension of the event. Verse 7 there. In verse 7, when they, the Pharisees, persisted in questioning Jesus, he, Jesus, stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. So has their trap worked? Have they beaten Jesus? Have they got him? Are they ready to hand him over to the courts? When they heard this, what did they do? Verse 9, at this time, they began to go away one by one, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. There's an intensity the whole way through this event, isn't there? We're drawn into the story with the adulterous woman Center stage, we're drawn into the story as the Pharisees persist to question Jesus whether they should stone the woman. We're drawn in as we hang on what Jesus will say and the event is starting to get more and more intense. Will the Pharisees stone the woman? Will Jesus wind up in jail? The tension is starting to rise. My shoulders are feeling like they're getting up really tight and then all of a sudden, it's over. It's silence. You see, up to this point, the adulterous woman was the only one standing in silence in the middle of the crowd, but now here are the Pharisees, silent, walking away. They drop the stones from their hands, and that's it. So, what's happened? What has Jesus done that has made the Pharisees walk away from the scene? It seemed to be a really clever trap that they'd set. What, what does Jesus do here? Well, I don't know if you've ever played a game Spotlight, uh, like one of those big youth group games. They're, Usually um, a bunch of teenagers jump on the back of the ute. The ute then drives out into the middle of the forest and the woods out in a really, really dark place at night and uh, you can't really see anything. Uh, the ute then drops the, the teenagers off at the spot then drives away up the hill behind some trees and then back down over the hill and halfway to Mwoolumba. And uh, the idea of the teenagers, they've got to try and get back to the ute um, to make it home without getting spotted, without getting this giant spotlight put on you. You kind of feel like you're a rabbit in the headlights of a car or something because really you can't see who's holding the torch. It's pitch black and you can't see who's holding the torch. You can't see behind the torch. Now what we have in John 8 are the Pharisees and they've got the torch shining right on the adulterous woman. And no one can see who's actually behind the light. No one can see who's holding the torch. They can only see who the torch is shining right onto on the adulterous woman. But what Jesus does here is he grabs a torch and he turns it around onto the Pharisees. And the spotlight lights up all their hypocrisy for everyone to see. You see, you might have remembered that the Pharisees quote the law of Moses in verse 5 and they said that the woman deserved to be stoned to death. We heard that, right? Now, the law of Moses does say that anyone caught in adultery was to be stoned, but the punishment was both for the woman and the man who were caught in adultery. Now, I think there's a, a key person that's missing in this scene, isn't there? Where's the man? 
Where's the guy that this woman has committed adultery with? The short answer is that we don't really know. He could have done the runner. He could have been watching the event from a distance. He could have been in the crowd. We don't really know. But what we see in all of this is, is this the, the hypocrisy, the, the dirt and the way that the Pharisees point the finger towards the woman and they use her to try and trap Jesus. Here she is, an easy target. She's vulnerable. And they take her sin and they expose it for everyone to see. And they take the law of Moses, you know, something that was designed to help God's people live for God, and they use it against Jesus. And so they mix both of them together and they try and set a trap, a bait, to get Jesus killed. The most ridiculous thing, isn't it? Because the Pharisees were supposed to be leaders of God's people. They were supposed to be saying, this is the way to go to live for God. Do you see the hypocrisy there? The Pharisees take this giant spotlight and shine it in the adulterous woman's face and they point high beam on her sinfulness, but yet they do that so no one is able to see them. So no one's able to see the way that they've rejected God so they can keep their sin at arm's length. Well, all except for Jesus because at the end of verse 7, Jesus catches the Pharisees in the middle of their hypocrisy and he says, the one without sin among you throw the first stone. This is a clear case of what happens when you point the finger at someone, isn't it? What happens when you point the finger at someone? We heard this a few weeks ago. Point the finger at someone and there's three pointing back at you. That's the problem, isn't it? And if we stop to identify with the woman caught in adultery, maybe we need to stop at this point as well and think about, well, how as a church might we point the finger at other people? How might we point our noses up at people and think, we're too good for that person. There's no way that that person will ever come to hear Jesus. There's no way that that person could trust in Jesus because look at all the stuff that's going on in their life. Look at, how, look at how much better that I am. Do we point our finger at the sin of those in our community? Maybe it's not so much in a literal way. Um, I don't think we'll be out in the street tomorrow pointing at lots of people and pointing our noses up at people. But maybe in our, our thoughts, do we think, well, Jesus could never love that person. They swear too much. Jesus could never love that person. They, they seem to get drunk every week. And they, Jesus could never love that person. They're often in different beds. So we point the, the finger at the sin of people in our community, neighbours, workmates, friends at school, and think, well, Jesus could never love them, so therefore I'm not going to bother sharing Jesus with them. Maybe even as a church we, we do that here. In these walls, we point at one another's sin. Again, maybe not in an obvious way, but maybe at morning tea we say, well, that person, they lied to me last. That person, uh, yeah, have you heard about such and such, what they've done? I don't think we'd see, you know, um, the elders bringing someone up to the front like that and pointing out the struggle with materialism or something like that. I don't think we see that here at church. But maybe we, we gossip about other people's sin. And maybe we put on the guise of, oh, I'm going to please pray for this person. They're really struggling with sin. It's good to pray for people, but maybe we need to check first that we, we can pray what's going on for that person. Maybe it's uh, struggling with uh, lying or, or struggling with selfish ambition. We think, oh, you know, that person, I'm not going to bother talking to them. Look at what they do. 
I'm so much better than what they do. Are we a church like that? Are we a people that say one thing but yet do another? I don't know about you. I find it so easy just to shift the blame from myself and keep my sin at arm's length, to quickly point out someone else's faults before looking at my own. And we heard that a few weeks ago, didn't we, with removing the, the plank out of our own eye before we seek to go and talk to someone about their sin. No doubt we need to be uh, confronting people with how they're going, living for Jesus and confronting people with their sin, but yet pointing our finger at them, well, there's a difference there, isn't it? Pointing our noses up and looking down at them at the same time, there's a difference. I don't know about you, I find it easy to, to do that. I've said hurtful things. I find it hard to ask for forgiveness. And I think, look at what they did to me. But yet the big challenge in all of this is that we need to hear Jesus. We need to make sure that we see the, the log in our own eye before we try and remove the speck in someone else's. We need to be people who don't point the finger at each other's sin, but, sin, but just talk lovingly and openly and say, hey, I notice that you're struggling with, with this. How about we pray about that? How about I ask you regularly about how you're going with that? We don't point the finger at, at people's sin because what has Jesus done for us? Well, in this last beautiful scene of John 8, we see Jesus not caught in the act of pointing the finger at the sin of the adulterous woman, but caught in the act of reaching out in mercy. The Pharisees caught in their hypocrisy and they left the stones that we're going to use to kill her. They left the scene. Uh, they left the woman standing alone with Jesus. And in this scene, the silence is broken. And all that's happened after being brought out in front of the whole crowd, ready to be stoned to death, Jesus asked the woman, verse 10, Are they all gone? Is there no one left to condemn you? Is there no one around that can sentence you to death? And the woman's awestruck. She answers, verse 11, There's no one. No one has sentenced me to death. She's still breathing. Her vital organs are still intact. Not, not punished. And right here is the pinnacle of the event because Jesus reaches out in mercy and says, at the end of verse 11, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. There they stood, the accused woman and Jesus, nothing left of the shouts and the angry words of those who had spoken to them before. Uh, the only evidence they had was these rocks left behind, scattered all over the ground. And Jesus, the only sinless man to walk the planet, stands next to the woman, this sinful woman. Who, he, he said, neither do I condemn you. I don't know what the best words are that you've ever heard, have been, the best words that you've ever heard. Maybe it's been something like the lines of, will you marry me? Or your illness is cured. Uh, maybe for those doing the HSC, it'll be at the end of the, at the, end of the last HSC exam, pens down. I, maybe the, the best words that you've ever heard are, are free food. <laughs> it's a good one. But what Jesus says here to the adulterous woman, I think they've got to be the best words that she's ever heard, right? Neither do I condemn you. And at the same time, they're great words that we hear from Jesus as well. You see, a little under a year from this event in John 8, Jesus would walk up a hill, he'd carry a cross, and at the top of that hill, his arms are stretched wide, his legs are broken, nails are put into his hands, into his feet, where he would breathe his last breath. And it's our rejection of God, our sin that separates from, from God. But God's Son, Jesus, came into the world not to condemn our sin, 
not to sentence us to death that we rightfully deserve, but to save us, to bring us into relationship with the Father. Jesus was condemned, sentenced to death for our rejection of God so that we wouldn't be. This is the great length that God has gone to in showing how much he loves us. As we sung before, our name is graven on his hands, our life is written on his heart. And even when Satan tempts us to despair, those feelings, the guilt, the shame, the isolation, well, it's all dealt with in the death of our sinless Saviour. The cross is the great act of mercy that you and I, that all of us, are caught up into. Our sinful soul is counted free. But that's not where it finishes. Jesus doesn't condemn us in our sin. He doesn't point the finger at us. But at the same time, he doesn't just wave it off either. He doesn't wave it off under the carpet. You see, Jesus doesn't condemn our sin, but he doesn't condone our sin either. He doesn't then say, okay, you're forgiven. Now go and live the way that you want. Go and do whatever you want to because I'm about to die for you. We've been free from condemnation, freed from the sentence of what our sin deserves by Jesus' death on the cross. And so what does that mean? Was living in obedience for him. So as a church who say that we're followers of Jesus, let's just examine our heart for a moment. Are you living in obedience to Jesus? Is there something that you need forgiveness for? Is there something that you need to leave behind at the foot of the cross? See, God's desire is that we realise our sin, that we confess it to him, that we trust Jesus as Saviour, we seek to live a brand new life in obedience to him. You see how the gospel humbles us. Uh, for a, a hell-deserving sinner to be given a whole new life at the cost of the Son of God or by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you living a life of obedience to Jesus? Let's pray that we would and pray that we wouldn't be pointing the finger at other people's sin but reaching out in love. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though you know our deepest, darkest desire, even though uh, ultimately our hearts turn away from you so often, Father, thank you that you don't condemn us in our sin. Thank you that you let your Son Jesus take the penalty for our sin on the cross. And Father, we know that you don't at the same time condone our sin. Uh, That through your word and through Uh, different people helping us to follow your son Jesus that uh, we shouldn't sweep our sin and the ways that we reject you under the carpet so Father help us to uh, bring that before you and help us to trust what your son Jesus has done for us Father we pray that we wouldn't be pointing the finger at other people's sin and other people's life but we would instead be reaching out our hands in mercy asking them to come to know the hope and the love and the forgiveness that's found in your Son, Jesus, and the life that we have through him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.